morning, we're continuing. Last week, we uh, talked about Mary's song, and um, Mary was telling us about um, the... Uh, Mary was telling us about how she worships, and um, that... Uh, or she was singing the song, and we were learning from Mary how she worships. And uh, part of that was her knowledge of God, and the knowledge of his character, and her faith in his promises. And this morning, we're continuing, obviously, on our series in Christmas, and we're looking at uh, the uh, arrival and the mission of Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about this, um, I was writing this Christmas message, and it's on Matthew 1, 18 to 25, if you want to tap there on your phones or turn there in your Bible ahead of time. Um, And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, it's another Christmas message We've all heard this Christmas message so many times, and this is something pastors go through every time they come to Christmas or Easter or some of those holidays, and you think, how, how do we tell this in a new way? And then you stop and you think, you don't really need to tell it in a new way, because the message as it is given is told exactly how God wants it to be told. And it's for us to look into how God is telling it and learn what it is that he wants us to learn as we review this account of Jesus' birth. And for some people, it's the first time they've heard this message. It could be the first time, whether they're online or whether they're checking it out later or whether they've just come to church for the first time, this is the first time they're hearing the Christmas message. And so uh, as, I, as I look at this account in Matthew, just remember that God is speaking to us so that we have knowledge of the hope that we should have at the arrival of his son. And in that hope, he has, through Matthew and through the Holy Spirit, given us pointers about the miraculous nature of the arrival of Jesus and the miraculous mission of Jesus as he comes. And so we're going to be going back to our series on Matthew. If you remember, a long time ago, we started Matthew and we were preaching all the way through and we got to about chapter 17 or so. And then we took a break for the fall, and I'm going to be starting Matthew again in January. And so we are going to look at the account of Jesus' birth from Matthew, just to sort of get us back into that gospel. Matthew 1, 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angels of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So the first thing we're going to look here is we're going to look at the circumstances of Jesus' birth and how God arranged the circumstances of Jesus' birth in such a way that it would be pronounced in history. And it's the perfect planning of the birth family of Jesus introducing him into the world. So in order for Jesus to be born in the miraculous way that we celebrate every Christmas and the way that God chose to set his birth apart 
as a virgin birth, we understand that Mary could not already be a mom with three or four kids. Because if a mom with three or four kids already got got pregnant again, that wouldn't be a surprise. Her family and friends would have some ideas about where that baby came from. But it also wouldn't work so great for God in planning the birth family of Jesus if Mary was completely unconnected to any husband. If she was just a local girl who got pregnant outside of marriage, that may not be so unusual either, and people would not necessarily be surprised. They might be concerned, they might be shocked, they might be sorry, but they wouldn't necessarily be surprised. And her child then wouldn't have any confirmed lineage. So Mary can't just be a mom of four or five already, and she can't be a completely unconnected girl of the village. So God comes to Mary when she's betrothed. When, that is, she's pledged her fidelity to Joseph, and Joseph has pledged his fidelity to her. And the pledge establishes that their marriage will take place, and their families know about this pledge. And in ancient Israel, this betrothal or this engagement, it lasted for one year. And after that one year, Mary would move into Joseph's house, and they would consummate the union. But culturally, when Joseph betrothed Mary, they were considered married at that time. That's why he says that he would consider divorcing her, even though technically the betrothal hasn't been consummated yet. And so we have this young woman who would be pledged only if she were known to be a virgin, and we, she is in the line of David, and her family and friends are all aware of her pledged status, and so now if this young woman gets pregnant, that's unusual. That would be very, very different. There'd be a lot of verification of what had taken place. And God's arranged these things. This is the woman that he has chosen to bear his son. And then on Joseph's side of things, you have a man that the text here says is righteous and just, and that he's kind. And Joseph wants to do what is obedient under the law. But notice, Joseph also doesn't want to be unkind to Mary and to put her to shame. And so he considers and he contemplates that perhaps a quiet divorce is the most kind thing that he can do that also follows the law. But while he's contemplating this, and notice that he doesn't act rashly or in any kind of self-righteous anger, even though his fiancé is pregnant, an angel comes in a dream and gives him instructions. And Joseph chooses obedience to the angel over his own embarrassment or over his own shame. Joseph knows that if he goes forward with this, he's going to be looked at sideways by everybody in the village, everybody who finds out about it. But he chooses to go forward in obedience rather than take care of his own reputation. Joseph chooses to keep the family together rather than break it apart. And there's a lot we could unpack from these circumstances, but these are the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. This is how God planned Jesus to come into the world in a way that is noticeable. It's going to be a virgin birth. It's going to be a birth to a betrothed woman, someone who doesn't have kids already, someone who is not just some random woman of the village. It's someone who is in the line of David. It's someone who is betrothed. It's someone who has family around her who can guarantee or can verify the fidelity of what's going on. And so I'll just leave you to consider the high value that God placed on his own son being brought into the world in a stable, two-parent family, and the goodness of Joseph in obedience to adopt and raise Jesus as his own and to provide stability and safety for marriage, who is in a very precarious social situation. But God planned all of this beforehand so that this would be the circumstance of Jesus' birth. 
God knows the world is not as he intended it to be, and God knows that not every family will be perfect and whole, but God has a plan for families and a way by faithfulness to each other and a willingness to be kind and by seeking obedience to redeem every family situation, no matter how unusual it might appear. So God plans before the foundation of the world that Jesus' birth would be brought into these family circumstances. But then we look and we consider the miraculous nature of Jesus' arrival. And this is the main part of the narrative here. We first see that his arrival is prophetic. There's no question that all the disciples and all the early Christians viewed the arrival of Jesus as an answer to prophecy. And these prophecies that are prophecies that could not be manipulated by Jesus or by any of his followers. Jesus had no control over the location of his birth. He had no control over the lineage of his parents. He had no control over the name that they would give him. He had no control later on in his life of the behavior of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He had no control of the behavior of Judas or the soldiers. He had no control over how Pontius Pilate would treat him or the Sanhedrin. And yet in every way, as you go through Jesus' life, all of these things which he had no control over are prophetic fulfillments from hundreds and hundreds of years ago in the Old Testament. And in every way, his life and his death is showing him to be the Messiah. And Matthew sets this out right at his birth. He says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And I don't think that needs too much explanation this morning. Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any other gospel in terms of the anticipation and the expectation of Jesus arriving as the Messiah. And in this text, he quotes Isaiah 7.14. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall be call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So first of all, the nature of Jesus' arrival is prophetic. Secondly, his arrival is miraculous. The angel tells Joseph, Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Or Luke 1.35 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the Most High will overshadow you. And in that language, in the coming of the new Adam, we have a picture of Genesis or an echo of Genesis of the Holy Spirit and his creation in Genesis and the recreation in Joseph. In Genesis 1-2, it says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And in Genesis 2-7, he breathes life into Adam. And now the Spirit is going to hover over Mary, and the Spirit is going to bring physical life to Jesus. And so it's both prophetic, but it's also an echo of recreation in the coming of Jesus. There's kind of a funny story that C.S. Lewis recounts as he's sitting in his office. Uh, he's a professor, and he's sitting in his office, and one of his colleagues come in, and they're listening to music outside of his open window. And they're singing carols about the virgin birth of Jesus. And the colleague of his in university enters into the office and says, isn't it good that we know better now? And Lewis says, you'll have to explain. I don't understand what you mean. And his colleague says, well, isn't it better now that we have science and knowledge and we understand that this virgin birth is impossible and it was all just, you know, mystical and myth, is, you know, myth and all of these things? To which Lewis exclaims to him, that's the whole point. Don't you think they knew where babies came from? The, the whole point is, is that it is a miraculous birth. The whole point is, is that it was a recreation. It is, a, it, the whole point is that it is a punctuation in history that is unprecedented and will never happen again. The whole point is that it could not happen apart from God. 
It wasn't that it was somehow unexplained and people were making up some sort of myth about how it could happen. They understood exactly what was happening. And so there's a good reason behind why God chose this miraculous method. Apart from it being a clear sign because of the virgin conception and birth, Jesus did not inherit a sinful nature. And Jesus did not inherit the guilt that all humanity bears. Jesus' birth is meant to be set apart. It's meant to be an interruption in the human line from Adam. Jesus' birth comes to us in a way that says we can be set free. There is a new Adam who has come who will not fail. God, who creates in Genesis 1, is now recreating in Matthew 1. He's making way for mankind to be rescued from sin and reconciled to himself which leads to the third nature of Jesus' arrival, and the most important one for us today. Jesus' arrival is missional. Jesus came here with a purpose and a mission, and that is what we celebrate every Christmas and why we keep coming back to this story again and again to remind ourselves that this is the reason that Jesus came. The angel says to Joseph, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And his name is important here. His name speaks to the mission that Jesus is on. There's a purpose for him coming. There's a purpose for him being called Jesus. It's going to be Jesus, which is the Greek version of Yeshua, what we would pronounce Joshua, and means God saves. And so when you think in... Canada or America and the English naming that nobody names their kid Jesus anymore. There's actually lots of Jesuses out there. They're Joshua's. That's Jesus is the Greek name of Joshua, or in Hebrew you would say Yeshua, and it means God saves. And that name is by no means accidental, as we will soon see. Jesus came in the midst of a fallen world. Jesus came in the midst of a world that was broken by sin and in need of being saved, in need of a Savior. The problem of sin requires a divine solution. And so we see in the circumstance and the nature of Jesus' birth that there is a divine solution coming, that God has provided the divine solution that's needed. The world needs a new Adam. It needs a man that comes from an interruption in the history of our sin. It needs someone only like Jesus who can save us from our sins. And that's the mission that he was sent on. Jesus comes in a missional sense. The purpose of his coming is to save us from our sin. The reason that he needs to do this, the reason that we need this interruption in the line of Adam, the reason we need this divine intervention, the reason we need a Savior who comes as Jesus is that the law won't save us, or our own righteous works won't save us. Our own righteousness, our own ability to perform for people and for God was not able to save us. Not because the law was deficient, but because we are. So that Jesus comes to do what the law couldn't do. Paul says in Romans 8, he says, For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did how? by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature but according to the Spirit. You see, Paul connects the dots. He says, why did Jesus come? Well, because the law, because we were sinful, couldn't accomplish us becoming righteous. God had to do what the law couldn't do by sending his son. There's the connection. Jesus comes on a mission. He comes on a purpose. He is a divine intervention for our sinfulness. 
So in this text, we see the explanation of his birth. He has to come in the likeness of man so that he can be fully human, born of a woman, but not sinful himself, or it won't be a satisfactory substitution. If we're going to be rescued, we need to be rescued, and we need to be rescued by someone more than just a good moral teacher. We need something than just a better example to follow and how to live better. That's already been tried and failed with the law and with the prophets. We need the perfect righteousness expected of the law to be perfectly fulfilled. We need a divine, a godly, a perfect solution, and that has come in Jesus. This is what the nature of Jesus' arrival and the circumstances of his arrival point to. So the law won't save us. Moses isn't going to save us. As you read through the Gospels in the New Testament, you'll discover that the person of Moses is equated with the law. The law came through Moses in the Old Testament, and so the name Moses is invoked or referred to by followers of the law. And we see this over and over and over again in the New Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees say, we are, uh, you know, the sons of Abraham, we have Moses. They keep saying, we have Moses. And now maybe it's just me and the way my mind works, but... Given the fact that the religious people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all these moralistic religious people who thought that they could be righteous by their own works, which we've just had confirmed that isn't going to work, so they're still trying to be held, they're still trying to count themselves righteous by the law when God says, I've sent my son to make you righteous. And they're continually trying to confront Jesus and his followers with the boast that they followed Moses and they don't need Jesus. They don't need Yeshua. They don't need Joshua. Right? And this is, just bear with me for a little bit, how my mind works. I'll give you an example in John 9, 26 to 28. This is the Pharisees. They say to him, Jesus, or so they say to the man who was uh, born blind, and then Jesus cures the man. And so they're questioning the man who Jesus cured to find out who he is. And they ask him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> he says to the Pharisees. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. You see, they're saying, we follow Moses. You may be following this Jesus guy, but we're following Moses. The Pharisees set themselves apart from Jesus. They confront Jesus, and they set themselves under Moses. And again, maybe it's just how my mind works, but every time they do this, the Pharisees, the self-righteous, the ones who are trying to be made righteous under the law, are literally saying, we don't need Joshua to enter into the promises of God because we have Moses. Remember, Jesus is Yeshua, is Joshua. And so these Pharisees, who know their Old Testament really well, are saying, we don't need Joshua to enter into promise because we have Moses. I'm getting some blank stares there, but I think you're catching on. Who is the one person who did not enter into the promised land? Moses. Who led people into the promised land? Joshua. And yet over and over and over again, these Pharisees, trying to find themselves righteous by the law, trying to count themselves righteous under Moses, say to the disciples and say to Jesus' face, we don't need Joshua because we have Moses. Moses will not get you to the promised land. Joshua will get you to the promised land. His name is not an accident. The nature of Jesus' birth is that he is on a mission to save. He is the Savior. He is the one who is going to lead us into promise that the law cannot lead us into. 
So every time these Pharisees say that we don't need Jesus because we have Moses, there should be like a whooshing sound going over their heads. Because if the irony of what they were saying didn't hit them, then they should have picked it up when Jesus literally says to them in John 5, 45 to 46, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Jesus says, I'm not the one who's going to accuse you. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So Jesus, like, connects the dots for them. He says, you're rejecting me, but I'm not the one accusing you. You're trying to follow Moses. It's Moses who accuses you because Moses saw me and wrote of me. Moses is pointing to me, and you're ignoring Moses. Moses is the accuser. I'm not the accuser. The Pharisees were blind guides leading others into blindness. They couldn't see what was right in front of them. And we can't look down on them because too often in our life, we don't see what's right in front of us either. The law does not save. Performance does not save. You will not enter into God's promise by performance and by qualification and by justification of your own efforts. But the message of Christmas is this. Joshua has come. Jesus has come. Be his disciple. Follow him. Trust him. He is the offspring of promise and the advent or the arrival of promise. All the promises of God have their yes in him, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, including the promise of salvation. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus is an important name. Yeshua is an important name. It is the name of salvation because only Jesus can lead us into promise. He will save his people from the wilderness. He will save his people from slavery. He will lead his people into promise. And we can add in here also the realization that Joshua was given the task of conquering all of the enemies of God's people. Right? You remember when Joshua goes into the promised land? God says, Joshua, you're going to go ahead and you are going to conquer all of the people that are here, all of the people that would enslave you, all of the people that would lead you away from me. You're going to conquer all of those nations and you are going to separate yourself from them. You're going to have victory over all those nations and all those people who would be your slave masters, all those people who would lead you away from me. Joshua was given that task of conquering all those enemies. And in the same way, Jesus has conquered our enemies. Jesus has broken the power of our sin over us and overthrown the powers of darkness and destroyed our spiritual enemies and reserved for us a spiritual inheritance. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus is the one who leads us into promise and Jesus is the one who overthrows our enemies. Joshua was just a shadow. Joshua of the Old Testament was just a shadow. He was just a picture. He was just a reflection of the true Joshua that was to come in Jesus, who would lead us into the promise of eternal life and salvation, who would overthrow our enemies of sin and darkness, and even defeat the final enemy, death. Finally, we see that Jesus is the one who will do the saving. It's not going to be the law. It's not going to be Moses. It's not our performance. It's not the prophets. It's not the people who have gone before on our behalf. Jesus is the one who's going to do the saving. Notice the construct of the sentence that we've been looking at in Matthew 1.21. It doesn't say that this child will provide a way for us to save ourselves. 
It doesn't say that the child will show us a way to be saved, as if he's going to come as a great teacher and give us a better example. And if we just follow his teaching, then that will save us. It doesn't say that Jesus is going to help us get saved, as if we can get saved, you know, with Jesus' help we can get there. It says, he will save his people. Jesus will save. He's not going to teach us how to save ourselves. He's not going to teach us a better way. He is going to save us. We are not going to save ourselves by working harder at the law. We're not going to save ourselves by following a better example or a wiser guru. Jesus is going to do the saving. He's always the subject of the verbs. Save, redeem, restore, reconcile. Jesus does all of those things because he has come on a mission to accomplish salvation. He does it, not us. 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Just look at all of the responsibility that God takes for what is taking place. It's God who establishes you in Christ. It's God who does the saving. It's God who has anointed. It's God who has put his seal on us. It's God who has given us his spirit. He is the actor in all of these verbs. He is the one who is doing. God loved. God gave. It was God's plan. It was God's action. John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's God loved. It's God that gave. It was God's plan. It was God's action. It was his initiative. We are not going to be able to solve it on our own. We need someone untouched by sin in relationship with the Father to come and rescue us. This is what we celebrate every single Christmas, is that Jesus came. He came miraculously. He came prophetically but he came on a mission to save, and we need his saving work. We need a missional Jesus ready to leave heaven, ready to leave the perfect unity that he had with the Father and the Spirit and to enter into creation to rescue us. It's no good if we're drowning just to be told to swim better. Jesus doesn't come along and just teach us how to be better swimmers in order to save ourselves. Jesus comes to do the saving. If we could swim better, then we wouldn't be drowning. And it's no good either if we're drowning to grab onto somebody who is like us, next to us, thinking that they are going to save us when they are also drowning. They can't even help themselves, let alone us. So when we are struggling to tread water in life, and when you've gone down for the third or the fourth time, you need a rescuer to enter into your circumstances from outside of the lake, outside of the ocean, outside of the waves, outside of the storm. You need a rescuer to come in who is firmly grounded and to be able to lift you to safety and guide you to the solid ground and set you on rock. And that's what we celebrate on, Jesus, on, on Christmas because that's what Jesus did. He came from outside. He's the divine intervention. He is the one who is standing on firm ground. He is the one who is righteous. He is the one who is just. He is the one who loves. He is the one who wants to rescue. And so he reaches down into creation, coming as a baby in the most unexpected way in order to rescue. And he is who we need to hang on to to rescue us. God knows that we are not going to get out of this ourselves, and so he entered into rescue. And then verse 22 tells us that God is faithful and he will do what he has promised. Matthew quotes a 700-year-old prophecy from Isaiah 7:14: Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what God promised came to pass exactly as he said it would. 
And so when God promises to never leave us or forsake us, in Hebrew 13, 5, or when God promises to be our refuge and our strength in times of trouble, in Psalm 36, or God promises that nothing has the power to separate us from him, Romans 8, 38, or that he will wipe away every tear and death and grief and crying and pain will exist no longer, Revelation 21. When God promises those things, we can trust in those promises. Why? Because Matthew has shown us that the arrival of Jesus was an answer to God's promise. He promised it 700 years ago, and it came to pass exactly in the circumstances and in the nature that he foretold. And so God is faithful to his word, and God sent his only son to enter into our pain and suffering in order to take on our sin and to suffer and die on our behalf. Why would God do that and then let us slip away from him? Why would God say, I'm going to rescue you, and I have rescued you, and then only lose us? God won't waste his son's sacrifice. God will not tarnish his name by not upholding his promise. If you trust in the promise of Jesus Christ that he has done everything for your salvation and you put all of your hope in Christ Jesus, God will not betray that promise. He will save. He will not contradict his nature. Finally, the nature of this mission that Jesus is saving is that it is a mission of love. The love of God is demonstrated by the fact that it's his own son that's given for our rescue. There is no question that this mission of God is one of love. When I had my heart set to marry Wendy, I didn't send someone else to propose to her. I went myself to propose. Right? When Isaac was sick with a fever and not improving as an infant, I took him myself to the hospital emergency room. I didn't send him with somebody else to say, oh, my son's really sick, could you do me a favor and... Take him to the hospital for me. In matters of love, we go ourselves to deal with it, right? And in the coming and arrival of Jesus, we celebrate the reality that this is a mission of love because God himself entered into our world in the second person of the Trinity, in Jesus the Son. And this is the difficulty that any so-called religions have that deny Jesus is God. There's a lot of religions out there who may give deference to Jesus, may consider him a prophet, may consider him an angel, may consider him a wise teacher, whatever. But Jesus absolutely is not God. They, they can't admit that because that is to admit something that takes them down a whole different path that they don't, they don't want to own up to. But that's the difficulty of any so-called religion that denies Jesus as God because they have to try to make the argument that God loves us, but God wasn't willing to come himself into the world. That, that God loves us greatly, but rather than laying down his own life, he created an angel, or he created some other being, or he rose up a prophet in order to die on our behalf, but God didn't die on our behalf. That's a dangerous thing to say of God, that it's like, God, I understand you love me, but I don't believe you loved me enough to die yourself. I would not want to face God with that accusation, because I think God would say, oh, Really? You don't think I loved you enough to come myself to die for you? Jesus is called Emmanuel because he is God with us. God loved us and God had such compassion for us that he entered into our world. He entered into creation. He entered into suffering. And God himself died for us. Just remember that. I certainly don't want to be the one who meets God and has to tell him, well, I know you loved me, but I never believed you loved me enough to die for me. God loves you that much. 
He really did take on our mortal body. He really did enter into our suffering. He really did feel our weaknesses and our temptation. And yet, in all of that, responded with perfect mercy and grace. He died for us in the form of his son. And that is the astounding truth of Christianity. That God himself entered into his creation and died to save us from our sins. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God was pleased to choose us, and it was in love that he adopted us as his children. It was in love that he sent his own son, knowing what his son would face, that he would die for our sins. Before we could possibly do anything to earn God's affection, long before any of us were born, God loved us and God put the plan of salvation in action. God knew Christmas was going to come. God knew he would send his son on this mission. God's love was already fixed on us before we ever even knew him. And yes, Jesus came to heal the sick, Matthew 4 tells us. He came to feed the hungry, Matthew 14 tells us. He came to bless the poor, chapter 5 tells us. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, chapter 6 tells us. He came to set people free from bondage, chapter 8 tells us. But ultimately, Jesus came to save his people from their sin. So then the question remains, who are his people? If he came to save his people from their sins, then we need to understand who his people are. It doesn't say that Jesus will save everyone. Matthew 1.21 says his people. And John 3.16 says whoever believes in him. And there's a lot we could unpack in explaining who exactly his people are. But the simple answer from the Bible is, if you trust Jesus today, then you are his people. If you put your hope only in Jesus Christ, then the Bible says he has adopted you and made, him his, made you his people. On the other hand, if you don't love and trust Jesus, if you reject Jesus the way the Pharisees did, if you said, any other way except Jesus, I'll try anything except Jesus, God accept me somehow, but just not through humbling myself and trusting Jesus, then you're not your people. If you keep reading after John 3.16, it makes that clear too in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the reality of what the Bible presents us as Jesus comes to us on this rescue mission. He has come to save his people, and his people are those who believe and who trust and who hope in him. So there's an easy way to tell if you're part of God's people. Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Do you lean into him and continue to follow after him? Do you put your hope in him? Do you treasure him? Do you cherish him? If you do those things, then you are his people. If you trust Jesus, then you prove yourself to be a part of his people and you are saved from your sins. And there are lots of people who don't treasure Jesus. There are lots of people who don't cherish Jesus. There are lots of people who reject Jesus. There are lots of people who don't put any hope in Jesus. And they're actually fairly easy to identify. They'll admit it themselves that they reject Jesus. But the Bible tells us those who seek will find and those that believe will be saved. And those who hope do not hope in vain. And so anyone who seeks and trusts and hopes, and treasures, and cherishes, and loves will be saved. And so this is the message of Christmas, that Jesus has come, that God has come as promised, 
that he has come miraculously so that there can be no doubt, that he has come in a way that is an interruption in the line of, of history. He's an interruption in the line of Adam. He has come in a way that is an interruption in history. He's come on a mission. He's come on a mission to save us. He's come in love. He's on this mission because he loves us and God loves us and that's why he's doing it. And you can become a part of God's people right now today by letting go of hope in false gods, by turning your back on performance, by stopping striving and thinking that you can be righteous on your own, by following rules, by thinking that you can live on your own terms, by turning your back on rebellion and against God, and instead trusting in Jesus and in the Father who sent him. As you trust in and as you hope in and as you treasure the Son of God who has come at Christmas, you become his people and you are saved. And that's the miracle of Christmas. The miracle of Christmas is that God would engage in a rescue mission like this, that God would look on his creation in love and that he would enter into his creation to suffer at the hands of his own people in order to save us from our sin. Jesus came on a mission to set us free from false hopes, to set us free from old slavery, to conquer our enemy sin, and to make us recipients of the love of God. And that is what we celebrate each Christmas. We celebrate this wonderful rescue mission of Jesus. And that mission began with his birth. Let's pray. Father God, we come back to this again and again and again every year. And you didn't ask us to celebrate Christmas. This is just something that we came up with. And it's a good thing we did because we so quickly get distracted in the weeds and get lost in complexities of things. At least once a year, we have to come back to remember this reality. That the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came. He came on a mission of love, on a mission to rescue us. He came as a baby but ultimately to go to the cross to rescue us from sin. So, Father, we love to celebrate this story. We love to remind ourselves of this reality, to remind ourselves of your faithfulness in this promise, and then that, let that remind us of your faithfulness in, of all of your promises, that as we hope in you, you will not disappoint. Father, I just pray that this morning, that this would just be a reminder to each of us, that we would celebrate the way Mary did, that this would bring joy to our hearts of this reality of your love and your rescue of us. And Father, I pray for any that have heard this for the first time, or even just maybe understood it differently for the first time, that it would bring joy to their heart as they put their hope and their trust in you, a God who loved so much before we could do anything to earn your love. You loved us so much that you would send your own son that you yourself would enter into creation to experience the same weakness and suffering and temptation that we do, but to go to the cross to save us from our sins. Father, help us to cherish that and love you for it. In Christ's name, amen.